Welcome to another great episode of Black Equity Podcast. I'm your host, Derek Motry, and we have a really great episode for you today. Actually, as we're talking, there is a U.S. House Finance Committee meeting about the economic threat that China poses to the United States of America. And I'm thinking, why don't we just dive in and see what's going on right now in the middle of the hearing and just see what we pick up on and see if there's any wisdom that we can extract from this conversation. So if you want to join me, I think this could be a really great impromptu episode because there's a lot of financial situations happening around the world globally. And I think it's time for us to dive in. So what we'll do is it's being recorded live uh, right now. So maybe we'll pop in uh, maybe 30 minutes beforehand. They probably are going to go to lunch soon. And so there's no need for us to pop in when they're leaving. Uh, but it definitely gives us some time to catch up with just some of the things that were said during the first couple hours. And so let's do it. After this short break, we will uh, be back to, to uh, jump into the financial committee with the economic threat from China. All right. Welcome back, everyone. We are here. It says February 7, 2023 at 10.04 a.m., is when they started this committee on financial services. And so we're going to just uh, pop in and pop out and just see some different things that happened during the first couple hours uh, as this is still going on live as we are recording. So, uh, but I'm really interested in this, especially recently there was a spy balloon, a balloon spy supposedly from China to China supposedly closely related with Russia. And so there's a, when you read the book from Ray Dalio that talks about principles, it says all war first begins economically. And so what we're looking at here at Black Equity Podcast is what wars are happening. It doesn't necessarily have to be tanks and machine guns. There are economic wars popping up everywhere. And any little bit of information that we can gather I want to be able to gather that information and that will come them. to order. So here's the committee, the committee now. will come to order and without objection, the chair is authorized to declare a recess of the committee at any time. So the committee is, is coming in session. And so I'll just listen into the first uh, few minutes and then I'll pop in whenever I feel uh, that we need to have some commentary. So let's enjoy this record. I want to thank our panel for being here. I now recognize myself for three minutes to give an opening statement. Um, the actions of the Chinese Communist Party last week serve as a clarifying moment. China is not an ally or a strategic partner. They are our competitor and pose a, a single, pose the single greatest threat to America's global standing. This committee is holding our first hearing of the Congress on combating the economic threat from China. This is a priority for the Congress and our committee's jurisdiction is central to this discussion. The economic strength and vibrancy produced by our system of free market capitalism directly fuels America's military strength and cultural power. Whether it's through sanctions, export financing, international financial institutions, or our capital markets, all of which fall under this committee's jurisdiction, this committee will lead this Congress's economic agenda in response to China. This agenda must maintain trust and confidence that our system will continue to grow capital resources, industrial capabilities, and new technologies. In other words, we must double down on our commitment to free people and free markets. The juxtaposition between the United States and China could not be more clear. They are centralized. We are decentralized. They are closed. We are open. They suppress free speech and human dignity. We embrace it. These are the American values that produce the economic strength that has led to the highest living standard and greatest military power in human history. Last Congress, committee Republicans laid out principles for how we should attack the economic parasite of China 
without sacrificing the host, which is our free market system. First, we must walk the walk. For the U.S. to compete with China, we cannot become more like the Chinese Communist Party. We need to carefully evaluate if a policy proposal could jeopardize America's ability to innovate, grow, and allocate capital, or if it would cause allies to question our commitment to free people and free markets. Second, the United States and its allies must prevent China from rewriting the international rules of the road. We should reject policies that allow China to ignore debt transparency and multilateral standards with impunity or allow them to exert a malign influence in the international financial institutions. Finally, the United States must lead by example. Our national security requires the U.S. financial sector to remain open, vibrant, and resilient, even as we prevent Chinese companies from advancing Beijing's strategic ambitions. If we stick to these principles and reinforce American values rather than undermine them, we can outcompete China on the global stage. I yield back. The chair now recognizes the ranking member of the committee, the gentlewoman from California, Ms. Waters, for four minutes for the purposes of an opening statement. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. As we discussed. So before we let uh, Ms. Waters speak, so there's something big there. So China is the sole economic threat to the United States of America? Wow. Those are, <laughs> for those who've read Ray Dalio's book about uh, the global changes, and let me look it up here. In the book, he talks about uh, economic war, the changing world order. I remember listening to this. Principles for dealing with a changing world order, and it basically gives you an outline of how things tend to go in patterns. Let me see if we can pull that up. For those who are watching on Spotify, you'll really enjoy this. So on Google, I'm typing in Ray Dalio and I'm putting in chart, and then I wanna put in uh, changing order chart. That's the name of the book, because he has two books out. And it talks, basically it's like a market cycle where things are going up and down depending on the uh, behavior of the economy. And in this chart, it talks about, here it is right here. I'm pulling it up now for those on uh, Spotify. The typical big cycle behind empires rule rises and declines. See if we can pull up the actual website so the chart will be bigger. And it's on this particular chart is on uh, Yahoo Finance. The big cycles of a life of an empire. And so there's a new world order that comes in. There's peace and prosperity, and productive debt growth. Then there's a debt bubble and a big wealth gap, which we've been talking about for a few years here. Then there's a debt bust and economic downturn, which is everybody's uh, wondering where we are right now. Printing money and credit. That's kind of where we are, right? revolutions and wars right we're kind of you see what i'm saying debt and political restructuring and then there's a new world order and so typically the best time to invest is roughly now as prices are going down you you get in as before the new world order comes in and then stability comes in and there's peace and prosperity and things go up right so we're somewhere in the middle of wars and the printing of money and credits, we're somewhere on this other side, right? If we if we were to take this chart as law, okay? And so what does that have to do with what we're talking about here? Well, this is an economic war going on. It's a huge economic war between the United States and China. And the opening statement says, they are our sole uh, competitor. They're the sole threat to us. And with those types of words, that's a war chant. And so that tells you where we are when it comes to the rises and declines of empires. Some people are saying China's in a decline. So we're kind of watching all this play out, 
right here in front of us. And using the information that's in front of us can help dictate how we make our investment decisions. So let's dive right back in and, and just hear a little bit more. How to bolster our economy and to counter threats from China. I'd like to start by saying that if House Republicans continue their brinkmanship over debt ceiling, it will result in even more severe interest rates, hikes, <clears throat> a plunging stock market, major job losses, and a recession of epic proportions. Such a global financial crisis would hand the Chinese Communist Party a massive win by boasting the Chinese government standing in the world. We've been down this road before, and there have been real harms to our economy. In the past, just by coming close to a default, this committee should be doing everything that it can to avoid the calamitous outcome. I believe this is what our committee should be focused on. And so I would like to submit for the record a letter that I've sent to you, Mr. Chair, requesting a hearing on the economic harm that will be caused by nearing or triggering a national debt default. Without objection. Thank you. I also want to point out the fact that anti-Asian American violence has skyrocketed in the wake of COVID-19 pandemic, fueled significantly by former President Donald Trump's dangerous and xenophobic language, which we must hold the Chinese government accountable for its harmful actions. We have a responsibility to avoid language that stokes hatred and fuels xenophobia and violence against the Asian American community. I'm proud that last Congress, House Democrats led the legislative effort to put an end to this violence by passing COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act. Right now, the authoritarian regime of the Chinese Community Party, Communist Party, is trying to reshape the international order to supplant U.S. leadership. We must confront this challenge by defending our values and securing our interests globally. And that's exactly what Democrats, particularly committee Democrats, have done. We've taken critical steps to protect our nation's security and ensure U.S. businesses and our economy can successfully compete with China by passing critical legislation. The American Competes Act, which had provisions to counter the Chinese Communist Party's growing economic influence, the longest reauthorization of the Export-Import Bank to preserve and create millions of jobs right here in America and to support American businesses as they compete with China. The Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020, which included a government-wide strategy to combat illicit finance, the Corporate Transparency Act to prevent the use of shell companies to hide dirty money in the U.S., the Chips and Science Act of 2022 <laughs> to ensure we win the technology race for the 21st century, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, which for the first time in decades poured significant funds into our aging infrastructure to not only support businesses here, but to attract investment from around the world, and the Inflation Reduction Act to finally reassert American leadership and displace China as the key supplier of critical equipment for the technologies that are needed to fight climate change. Still, there's more work to do, including making sure U.S. companies like hedge funds, private equity funds, and Wall Street are not investing in ways that hurt our economy or funding the adversarial actions of the Chinese government. I look forward to hearing from our witnesses all about what more this committee can do to support our economy. I thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I yield back. All right, so that's Maxine Waters. Uh, the, the committee is still talking. I just have them on mute right now. Uh, we'll jump right back in in a moment. But I did notice a few things that Maxine Waters was saying, and it's not just her, but there is this constant thing that even during a, a economic uh, conversation about economic threat from China, they're still talking about what the Democrats did and what, what the Republicans did. 
I always find that to be interesting instead of it just being a unified front. Uh, but Maxine Waters uh, delivers a really great uh, conversation there. She's basically going through all the different acts that have been passed in order to you know, push the economics of America forward. But I keep noticing something from all these different things that I've been picking up the last few weeks, which we've been posting on our podcast. It's almost like the federal government is trying to convince us that we are winning something that we're not even sure what the win thing is, right? We don't even know what we're competing against. And now it's apparent that what we're really competing against is an economic war against China. And they're telling us that we're not even friends with China. Recently, China announced, or Hong Kong announced, that they'll supply over half a million uh, airplane uh, tickets to people all over the world to come and visit Hong Kong and uh, be a tourist uh, for X amount of time. So China's trying to bring more people to boost their economy. America's doing these different acts to boost their economy. We're in the middle of an economic war. And they're having hearings about it. Why does economic war matter? Because when you start reading books like The Changing World Order by Ray Dalio, and you start seeing that we where we are on the rises and declines of empires, there is about to be a major shift in our economy, even though they're telling us that they're winning it all. Usually, if you're winning, you don't always have to announce that you've won. Someone else will come and say, this person won. But America wants to tell the world that they're winning. In the middle of uh, spy balloons, in the middle of a potential war breaking out, and when I say war, I mean physical war with Russia and NATO and Ukraine. With all these di different things happening, America's trying to tell its citizens that they have everything handled on an economic front. The question is, will the American people believe it? Somebody's listening to these hearings. It's not just me. There's a reason why these hearings exist. Let's dive back in and see where we are an effort to pull our friends away from the United States. We must counter this with the tools at our disposal through our voices and our vote in the international financial institutions, as well as through other activities, such as improving access to the United States-led financial system. Thankfully, through the leadership of Chair Waters, Democrats have already made significant strides to protect our nation's security and competitiveness by passing landmark legislation. I'm looking forward to continuing this critical work as we look at the international issues and national security and financial institutions. And I yield back. Once again, someone is telling us about how Democrats have already been doing what they need to do. Also, I want to say something else about what Maxine Waters talked about. She said a big part of what we're working on needs to uh, include private equity funds, hedge funds, and what they're investing in to make sure that it's aligned with our overall goal and mission. Pay attention to that. That's where a lot of the money is. A lot of times in these hearings, they tell you this is where the money is. Private equity funds, hedge funds, family offices. They're telling you this is where the money is. And so what I would advise people, we're, we're going to be working together closely with some of our listeners. If you are interested in starting your own hedge fund, starting your own private equity fund, or putting together some type of fund uh, all together, let's connect because that's where the real money is. And then what you want to do is figure out, well, how is America incentivizing those funds to make sure that they are investing in helping America grow? What incentive does these funds have? Well, my job, well, as I'm covering these things, is to figure out what are the incentives? Where are they hidden? So then we're able to focus our efforts in those areas. So let's continue and see what else is being said. Finally, Mr. Uh, Peter Harrell. Mr. Harrell was until recently the Senior Director for International Economic Policy with the Biden administration. 
and I'm sure he'll be able to provide insights into how the current administration views these matters. Uh, we thank you all uh, for taking time to be here. Each of you will be recognized for five minutes to give an oral presentation of your testimony. As you're all familiar, uh, red means stop. Uh, yellow means hurry up in general parlances. Uh, and green obviously means go. So with that, uh, now that we've discovered colors, that colors have action uh, uh, that we should take around them, Mr. Hsu, we'll now recognize you for five minutes. Thank That's you for the ground rules, Mr. Chairman, and, and thank you for the, also for the opportunity to be here, and, and uh, my appreciation to Ranking Member Waters and the, and the committee uh, for having this very important discussion. Uh, having served as the Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Export Administration at the Bureau of Industry and Security, I had both the honor and the challenge of weighing many of the same issues that we're, that we're confronting uh, today in this committee, and it's in that capacity that I'm testifying here. It should be stated at the outset that the concerns at the heart of this hearing are, are well-founded. While well, great strides have been made in addressing these concerns, national security and economic threats are never static and must be constant, constantly addressed. It's also important to stress early on that U.S. global technology leadership remains strong and that the American culture of innovation is the envy of the world. I stress this because it is essential for policymakers as you consider the challenge of promoting U.S. technology advancement while regulating it in the face of potential threats to cause no harm to the very thing you're trying to promote and protect. Much of what has been accomplished in recent years in this area has been the result of legislation. This committee had a key role in enacting the Export Control Reform Act and the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act, also known as ECRA and FIRMA. There are lessons from that debate which are still relevant as Congress considers new measures such as an outbound investment regime or dramatic changes to FIRMA or ECRA. While the issues associated with regulating financial behaviors or technology development are many, I'll confine my comments today to four recommendations that are drawn from the lessons in the effort to regulate in this area. First, clearly define the national security threat to be addressed. The temptation to address a broad panoply of legitimate concerns which do not necessarily rise to the level of national security threat is alluring. National security is currently understood in the United States is already very broad, taking into consideration factors such as infrastructure, supply chain, and data protection. The best tools are well-aimed and potentially harsh steps taken by policymakers should ensure that the target of such action is clearly defined. Second, regulate horizontally. What do I mean by that? National security threats are rarely stovepiped. Solutions to address them should not be either. National security threats are commonly carried out by individuals or groups funded by government with the help of or pursuit of technology. Therefore, multiple U.S. agencies and departments must collaborate. One of the most critical updates to FIRMA and ECRA was to dovetail their definitions and authorities, establishing a unique definition, for instance, of critical technologies and grounding that definition in well-defined export control lists. This synchronization is a model for enhancing the power and effectiveness of U.S. government policy implementation. Third, gaps do exist. Leverage what works to address them. For all the enhancements in recent years to protect U.S. technology, gaps do remain. For instance, it is currently possible that export-controlled technology could be the beneficiary of U.S. financing, intentionally or not. This disconnect is one which could be addressed through alterations to current authorities. A recent enhancement in the Export Administration regulations defines the term support by U.S. persons to include, among other things, financing. While further study must be conducted, this feature of the law creates a regulatory hook to limit financial activities already tied to restrictions based on export controls. And finally, just as synchronization among relevant agencies and authorities is critical, high priority must be given to alignment with partner nations. Many like-minded countries have emplaced national security reviews similar to those of the U.S., such as the foreign direct investment screening and export controls. It's clear from the behavior of our allies that the U.S. has led in these areas, resulting in a more comprehensive and therefore effective approach, and the U.S. should continue this leadership. Specifically, the U.S. along with key allies should consider a new method for multilateral controls in targeted technology areas that can work with, but is separate from, the existing multilateral regime construct that has served the U.S. and partner nations well in the past, but which is ill-suited for complex technology supply chains. 
the ad hoc approach currently utilized in the area of semiconductors, for example, should be replaced with an agreed upon system among a smaller group of stakeholder nations that can act in concert as the need arises with a full understanding of the nature of the technology involved. Without such alignment, unilateral policy will ultimately fail in combating both national security and economic threats from China. U.S. global technology leadership is indisputable, but it is perishable. Hearings like this are essential to maintaining it. I'm happy to take your questions. Shelman yields back. All right. Uh, so something key there is right towards the end, he mentioned something that we talked about briefly on our last uh, episode, or maybe it was episode before, I apologize, where we were looking at Biden's uh, economic speech, and he talked about semiconductors. Uh, if you follow me on LinkedIn, I have a newsletter there called The Wealth of Ideas. And in that newsletter, I broke down exactly how you could invest in this potentially trillion dollar industry of semiconductors. So there's something to what is being said in these hearings. Now, I am not going to say that everything ends and begins in government, but I do believe there's certain keywords and certain topics, especially in this digital age, where we can look everything up, they're basically handing you all the answers through just regular conversation. I always say this, when you are in a palace, you don't, you don't tend to talk about how beautiful the palace is. You just were born in the palace. You're used to the palace. You're used to having uh, everything at your feet. You're used to the forest being golden. You're used to being in this beautiful palace. And so you just talk about the different things that you experience. When you're not used to it, as soon as someone mentions golden floors or something that is outside your norm, you will fetishize, you will romanticize those words. So I would encourage people to put yourself around a palace thinking. And I'm not saying that these people are in a palace. Here's what I'm saying. You want to put yourself in environments where hedge funds and private equity funds and family offices and whatever it may be, those are normal conversations. It's not some big thing that needs to be broadcast and uh, pushed out for the world to, to focus on. It should just be a normal conversation. So it should happen leisurely. Within your leisurely conversation, this is what you talk about. It, it doesn't mean stop everything. Oh, my goodness, we're going to talk about private equity and hedge funds. It should be a normal occurrence. And so what you're hearing is during a financial services committee, as they're studying what's currently happening in the United States, as they study that and compare that to an economic threat of China, you're hearing key words being said, key terms being said that will help strengthen the United States. Those key words should be areas you're focusing in. Hedge funds, private equity funds, family offices, semiconductors. They're laying it all out there in front of you. It's not going to be with a big sign that says invest here. It's simply going to be regular conversation and something that they deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Let's dive back in. The debate has taken on a presumption that outbound screening is necessary, but decision makers would benefit greatly by not rushing into a solution. Additional hearings should be held to define objectives and determine costs and benefits. When a bipartisan Congress and the Trump administration collaborated, collaborated to make the most extensive changes to CFIUS in its history, those efforts included roughly a half dozen hearings with foreign policy and national security experts, the intelligence community, the private sector, and former and current administration officials. Congress and the president were thus well informed regarding the gaps they intended to fill, the law's reach, and the attendant increases in capacity and cost. Afterwards, it took two intensive years within an existing CFIUS bureaucracy to effectively implement the law. Here, Outbound screening would be created out of whole cloth. As with FIRMA, decision makers would be best served by building a comprehensive record, exploring whether existing or other types of authorities could be less bureaucratic and costly and more impactful. 
Existing authorities may in fact offer a better cost-benefit solution. My written testimony includes a foundational uh, laundry list of issues for a fulsome congressional examination of outbound screening. From my CFIUS experience, a new interagency committee would be extremely time and resource intensive and requires substantial effort to build a clear regulatory framework. It's in the best interests of national security, a strong open economy, and accountable government to get this right. This, the alternative could be an unrestrained bureaucracy, wasted time and resources, and an inadequate response to the PRC's ominous goals. Again, it's my privilege to appear before you today and contribute to your consideration of these consequential issues. I'd be happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Uh, thank All right, so what I'm going to do now is, you know, we heard the first uh, 10 to 15 minutes of this uh, committee hearing that's actually going on live now. So they're probably about an hour or so ahead of us. What I want to do is I just want to fast forward maybe 30 minutes into the uh, conversation because uh, right now everybody's kind of doing introductions and I just want to see what what's going on 30 minutes from now uh, in this hearing and then we'll dive back out if, if need be so let's let's go about 30 minutes ahead and see what's going on to ensure that China does not continue to undermine international institutions what can we do to counter that well, I think it's a, it's a combination of things. And, and in my testimony, I, I tried to make the point that you, you need to be comprehensive. And, and there are defensive measures you should use. Um, I think there are offensive measures where we need to be creating new markets. And then we need to really be working with our allies and partners uh, through the existing mechanisms, the G7, uh, and then at the IMF, WTO, and World Bank to try to pressure China to change its behavior. Thanks. Uh, pivoting to you, Mr. Fetto. Uh, there, we just rewrote uh, the rules of uh, uh, foreign investment in the United States um, with FIRMA that was passed uh, just over four years ago. That was an update to the CFIUS process. But that is an inbound flow of capital into the United States, and we have a process for that. There's now a discussion about expanding that authority to an outbound regime of taking U.S. dollars and their investment decisions internationally. Um, what risks does an outbound regime pose uh, to protecting our national security? To, to our national security or, or more broadly? More broadly, but frankly, it's national security, but more broadly than that, our economic capacity. Mr. Chairman, I, I, the problem is, um, is ill-defined at the moment, so it's hard to really scope a solution that, that precisely tackles an undefined problem. This would be as as Mr. Willems suggested, it would be um, a major economic policy and foreign policy change to impose these types of capital controls and may uh, impact global capital flows in an unpredictable way, including the extent to which um, foreign investors want to invest in the United States and how that potentially subjects them to U.S. jurisdiction. The way this was first drafted was incredibly broad and its extraterritorial nature would um, w would have been unbounded almost. And in that respect, um, it, it, it could have really impacted uh, our relationship with our allies and partners. Certainly, as Mr. Ashew has mentioned, um, doing these types of tools in a multilateral way is very important. There are only two countries in the world that I'm aware of that have outbound screening mechanisms, uh, Taiwan and South Korea. And as you're well aware, the size of, of the U.S. economy dwarfs those. And, and, um, and so we really have to think through imposing this type of, or creating this type of mechanism, not to mention the bureaucracy that would. So what I'm hearing is a question about monitoring the outflows of U.S. dollars to foreign markets to make sure where those dollars are going aren't potentially going to China. That, that's dangerous. <laughs> now they're over here talking about monitoring people's money and where it's going. So we have to know about these kind of conversations. We have Maxine Waters speaking. Let's see what Maxine has to say. Or anyone else who um, uh, interferes with our ability to carry out our democratic commission um, uh, methods and um, 
when Democrats last engaged in brinkmanship around whether or not to default on U.S. debt, interest rates on U.S. Treasury bonds skyrocketed. There was havoc in the stock markets and government, companies and consumers faced increased borrowing costs. The nation's long-term credit rating failed, resulting in an unprecedented restriction on the Federal Reserve's ability to use its monetary policy tools to define the U.S. dollar and stabilize the economy. And all of this happened when, um, even though an agreement was reached and we didn't default, Republicans are yet again actively working to risk unleashing the same devastation or worse as they did just over a decade ago. This time, some projections on what would happen if the U.S. defaulted on its debt indicate that the global economy itself could freeze if the United States Treasury market collapsed. Can you explain how allowing the U.S. to default on its debt would benefit the Chinese government by causing irreversible damage to the U.S. dollar status as a global reserve currency? Also, please explain how a default would affect Americans' standard of living and our nation's economic standard and political influence across the globe. And I am directing uh, this question uh, to Mr. Lividus Harrow. Thank you very much, Congresswoman. Um, I think it's a great question by Maxine Waters. I'm noticing that a lot of her conversations are still based off of Democratic and Republican. She seems to really be hammering that because there's an outside conversation uh, outside of this committee about a debt ceiling and how that will impact the United States of America economically. So there's a lot of moving parts here, a lot of political theater here. And in between it all, we want to figure out, well, where are the golden nuggets of wisdom? So we'll listen to a little bit of this response, then we'll head over another hour or so into the committee hearing, and then we'll give you some, some thoughts of what we're hearing. Give Beijing a kind of priceless talking point about how irresponsible the United States is that it can't even uh, pay its basic uh, obligations. I guess the final point I'd make is I do think, and I know there's legislation uh, in front of this committee to deal with kind of the role of the dollar. I am a huge believer that it is important for the dollar to remain the world's reserve currency and the global kind of medium of finance. That whole agenda would be massively undermined as well if we defaulted on our debt. Thank you very much. Um, several years ago, I worked with my Republican colleagues to reform the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States to strengthen our tools to prevent adversaries from purchasing key assets in the United States. Last November, this committee held a hearing that examined outbound capital flows or U.S. dollars flowing to foreign adversaries, particularly China, and the impact of those investments on our national interests. Several of the witnesses argued for a federal panel to review and, if necessary, restrain certain types of outbound investments, like the controls we impose through CIFIS. The witnesses testified, as have others, that while national security considerations should be paramount in such a review, should not be strictly limited to national security. Could you discuss the merits of creating an outbound, outbound investment review panel? What are some of the key elements of such a process? Thank you very much. Um, as several of my colleagues and I have testified, I do think it's important uh, that the U.S. have the authority to review a very narrowly targeted set of U.S. investments uh, in China. The reality is, for example, when we're investing in semiconductors here, and we are limiting uh, exports of semiconductor company to China. But U.S. companies can still invest in a Chinese semiconductor company to help that company develop its own technology. There's clearly a gap in the regime. And I think we need a narrowly targeted regime with the authority to close those kinds of gaps that we have in our uh, national security uh, apparatus currently. Thank you very much. I yield back. I now recognize for five minutes the chairman of the science committee, Mr. Lucas, the dean. All right, so uh, that was a really great answer. They're talking about out outflows of cash, and they're saying, hey, we're limiting semiconductors from other countries. 
but yet we're allowing them to invest in companies from other countries that have semiconductors. So I see exactly what they mean there. Let's uh, go forward another 30 minutes and see where we are. Had Congress not acted. And that was really important uh, to make sure that they're playing by the same rules and that we protect the sanctity of our markets. Now, I do think we need to be vigilant in making sure that we are reviewing them on an annual basis. And my understanding is that that is how the law will be implemented. And it's really important to make sure that the access they provided uh, in December was not just a one-time act to prevent mass delistings, but that we hold them to account. Well, you know, over a two-year period, you can play a lot of games. And so I think it's important that we go to an annual uh, audit, and I appreciate your comments. You know, the Chinese government there has also gotten into the digital currency business. And I've got a bill that, that uh, to prevent money service businesses from conducting transactions in the digital uh, yuan. Um, I don't know if any of you have looked at the bill. Are you having any concerns at all about uh, American businesses, American individuals did, uh, investing in that or being able to do business in that? Do you have any, I, any, any comments on it? Nobody? Yes. Sure, I'm, ha I'm happy to take that. I think, I think the general concern um, with the digital yuan, digital renminbi in particular is, is related to transparency and the question about what type of data or information the Chinese uh, could, could have access to given widespread implementation and usage of the digital renminbi. And so I think you know, legislation, and I, have, I apologize, I've not reviewed that legislation. Well, it would seem to me that, you know, I'm, I'm gonna leave that to my good friend, Mr. Hill here, who's the chairman of that digital currency uh, uh, subcommittee, but it would seem to me that this, that the Chinese use it to be able to control and monitor their people. And so why would we wanna allow our people to be in that same predicament? I, this, this is one of my concerns. Um, I know that a couple of my predecessors here on the, on the dais asked questions with regards to uh, how we should, uh, what we should do, what your actions should be, how should we control China with regards to the invasion of Taiwan. And I think we need to be looking at this, I think, very quickly, very, very thoroughly, because just over the weekend, uh, I guess about a week ago now, the uh, leading general for the Air Force indicated that he thought that, uh, we'd be, that China was going to invade Taiwan by 2025. Well, if that's the case, how, do, how, how should we react? I know, uh, I think Mr. Willems, you made a comment a while ago with regards to that. My concern is that when we put sanctions on Russia, I asked the question whenever the Fed and Treasury were here, are you thinking now in terms of what's gonna happen, how we should be sanctioning China when that happens, when they invade Taiwan? And it was like a deer in headlight looks. They had no idea what the hell we're doing, which is really concerning, knowing that this is inevitable. Uh, so I think that, uh, you know, Mr. Willem, would you like to go back over that a little bit? Do we have, what would be some things that you think we should do? And I think we need to stress, if these guys are gonna invade Taiwan, and we're gonna play footsies with everybody because, well, we don't wanna upset the apple cart with our allies, we don't wanna hurt the Chinese government, the Chinese are gonna take us over, they're weaponizing the economy against us today. At some point, we've gotta cut bait and say, you know what, you're bad people, we gotta stop playing games with you. What would you say? So three suggestions on Taiwan. I mean, the first is, as you articulated, we need to be thinking now about what a sanctions package should, should look like. We need to be working with allies uh, to make sure that they'll have resolve as well. And I hope that that's already happened. That's a big conversation that I'm noticing here. And as we're listening to this particular um, committee hearing, I'm going to pull up some conversations around China and Taiwan because it seems inevitable that there's going to be an actual attack between China and Taiwan, and we should know about that. So there's economic moves happening based off of some real uh, war tactics that are happening. And so combining those two allows us a, a clearer, more clear, more clarity when it comes to the economic situation here in the United States. So we're going to continue listening to what they're talking about, well, I'm gonna go ahead and pull up a video about China and Taiwan, just so we understand what is, what is, what is it they're talking about, more context. And world order, that includes the Chinese military controlling the South Pacific trade routes because the South Pacific trade walk is now the lifeline of the entire global economy. And that's why I was concerned, deeply concerned, about this balloon business and why 
the president allowed this balloon to go all over our country and not blow it down. Uh, so all I'm saying is that with this technology, with this military information, going deep into the abilities of our national defenses, our national security of the number one nation, economy, military in the world sends a powerful message, not only to our enemies, but to our partners in this nation. What gives with this? And also, under what circumstances do you see this Indo-Pacific nations accepting an economic and military order in which China sets trade and investment rules for that region, particularly if they are seen to be applying agenda-setting dominance over any new technology, the availability of new data and standards. This is why they sent that balloon to get an assessment of the technology, of the information, of the data. And this is why I want you to answer um, this question for So as they're pulling that up and, and going through that, I found a, a looks like a really great video on China and Taiwan. It says here, despite its small size, Taiwan is actually the 16th largest trading economy in the world. Right. And so the title of this video is How China Attack on Taiwan Could Damage the Economy. And it's only a couple, uh, two or three minutes long. So let's just dive in from Sky News and hear what they have to say when it re regarding uh, how big of a player Taiwan is and how it all plays uh, a part in what we're hearing on the committee. It's not just for this island, but for the whole world. Why is Taiwan's economy important? It's a small island, but it really punches above its weight when it comes to technological development, manufacturing, and trade. Even though it's tiny, this is actually the 16th largest trading economy in the world. And a research group have estimated that a war here would impact two trillion US dollars worth of economic activity. And that's before any secondary effects like sanctions or any international response. How could a war of China impact the economy? There are huge numbers of organizations and businesses that have outsourced a lot of their manufacturing here to Taiwan. In the case of a blockade, which is the most likely Chinese action, that means that huge network of companies would not be able to access their goods and services in the same way. One way in which this island is absolutely vital to global supply chains is in the industry of semiconductors. Now, they are the incredibly important, powerful, small chips that really power a massive range of products from aeroplanes to smartphones uh, to household devices and so much more. This is a silicon wafer that's one of the key products uh, that goes into making those semiconductor chips. Taiwan manufactures 90% of the world's most advanced semiconductor chips. If there was any disruption to places like this, to factories like this that manufacture the key compounds, it would be economically catastrophic. The pandemic gave us a small insight into what disruption in the semiconductor supply chain could look like, big delays at car factories and whatnot. Any conflict on the island of Taiwan would have that sort of impact, but times by many fold. How likely is a China-Taiwan conflict? The situation is getting worse, and we need to prepare for the worst possible scenario. China-Taiwan relations have been at one of their lowest ebbs for many years. This is a self-governing island, but China sees it as part of its own territory, and President Xi Jinping of China has made it a very explicit aim that he would like to bring Taiwan back under Chinese control. 
China has been much more routinely flying fighter jets towards Taiwanese airspace, much more regularly crossing what's called the median line, which is the unofficial border. Things became extremely intense back in August when the then Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, visited Taiwan. China responded with large-scale military drills and operations around the island. Experts believe that a full-scale invasion is reasonably unlikely, but rhetoric is being ramped up on both sides and things are certainly as tense as they have been in a long time. How are current tensions impacting the economy? Global security firms have reported that many companies have been in contact, risk planning and contingency planning, both for how they can diversify their business and potentially pull people out of Taiwan at future dates. There are large, important tech companies here who are also investing in plants abroad in places like America rather than here in Taiwan. And a company like Brompton Bikes in the UK has said it will move some of its manufacturing out of Taiwan too. This is not a mass exodus at this stage by any means, but there is a drip drip of companies looking to plan for the future. This is so interesting because we've just talked about semiconductors. We talked about Biden saying, hey, we're going to you know, start creating more semiconductors here. Well, now I see why. If China were to take over Taiwan, Taiwan makes over 90% of the world's advanced semiconductors then America would be stuck not having the access to those semiconductors. So now they're trying to be counterproductive or uh, uh, pre, uh, preamble and be able to move before this happens to have the semiconductors, which they see as a $1 trillion or trillion dollar industry. So now you're seeing an economic war take place. And it's the moving of manufacturing. It's the moving of industries. And what, what can somebody invest in? What can they not invest in? And this creates an, uh, an environment of some people feeling unstable, right? Other investors may see this as a really great opportunity. So that's what's currently happening all while live right now. They're having a financial services committee and they're talking about these very things. Let's dive in back into the committee hearing Let's see what they're saying before we head out for today. Mr. Wallums, I'm going to kind of stick in with the IFIs, the international financial institutions. Um, IFE, I'm sorry, the IMF Reform Act uh, and Integrity Act, which I've introduced in the last two consecutive Congresses, would place greater restrictions on major shareholders of the fund, notably China and Russia. Specifically, the legislation would ensure that any quota increases by the IMF would be done with consideration as to whether a country is following certain principles of the fund, most notably currency manipulation. Uh, the bill is complementary to my colleague Mr. Hill's Special Drawing Rights Oversight Act, which again draws attention to Russia's lack of adherence to international lending standards. Um, Mr. Williams, you noted in your testimony that the United, quote, the United States should seek to change the way China does business, close quote, and the need for it to be, quote, responsible international stakeholder, close quote. Can you help the committee understand how important it is for the IMF to hold China and other major shareholders responsible for their actions? So let me just say, I, I think your legislation makes a lot of sense, and in particular, this concept that we need to create standards within these institutions that hold China to account. I think it's difficult for us, whether it's the World Bank or the IMF, and to come in and simply say, we want China to do this or we want China to do that. Uh, that can make it, I think, sometimes difficult to gain broader support for it. But if we create a standard that we know China can't meet and use that as an objective standard, I think that can be more effective uh, within those institutions. Okay. Well, U.S. companies often face considerable disadvantage uh, to their Chinese counterparts, which often receive large state subsidies and, and, and those kinds of things. And uh, so I'm curious, what is the most effective tool, in your opinion, that we in Congress can wield to level that playing field without harming or impacting open and fair domestic markets as well? So on the subsidies question, there's a couple things we can do, and I'm, I see I only have like three seconds, but quickly I would say defense and offense. On the defense side, where there are Chinese subsidies, we have trade tools to countervail that. On the offensive side, we need to provide alternatives. And uh, maybe it would be helpful, Mr. Chairman, if we could get a response. In Gentlemen's time's expired. We can Thank you. Do I yield. a written response. Uh, we'll now recognize Mr. Lynch, the uh, ranking member of the Digital Assets Subcommittee, for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I want to thank the ranking member as well, Mrs. Waters, for 
uh, her work on putting this committee together, uh, this uh, hearing together. Uh, members on both sides of the aisle uh, have been keenly interested in the development of a retail uh, central bank digital currency. And uh, China's domestic retail uh, central bank digital currency pilot known as the ECNY or the digital yuan has received a lot of focus from Congress recently as a challenge to the primacy of the United States dollar and also as a full spectrum surveillance tool uh, for the Chinese government. However, usage of the digital yuan has so far remained very low as uh, consumers seem to be uh, sticking with uh, private payments ecosystems, including Alipay and WeChat Pay. Uh, there's been little focus, however, on Embridge, which is the uh, cross-border bank-to-bank wholesale CBDC pilot that's being conducted by four countries, including China, which is the lead. Uh, I think it's Hong Kong, Thailand, um, and uh, the one of the countries in the Middle East. I, I'm blanking on it right now. But uh, there are seven more countries uh, that have received offers to join. And, and Enbridge, as you know, operates outside of SWIFT and the existing uh, correspondent banking system and could be a tool for sanctions, evasion, and other financial crimes. Mr. Harrell, uh, how concerned should we be in Congress about China's central bank digital currency pilot project uh, and, and, and why? Thank you, Congressman, uh, for the question. Um, I, I agree with you. It's been interesting to see on the domestic uptake in China of the ECNY um, how little interest there is. Now, Chinese consumers, probably because they don't actually want the Chinese central bank seeing everything they buy, are trying to stay uh, outside uh, of the, the ECNY. We obviously have a limited ability to affect the domestic deployment of uh, a digital RMB in, uh, in China. I think you are right to focus on the cross-border payments. I don't think that China and RMB-denominated payment rails displacing the dollar is going to be a challenge of the next 6 to 12 months, but I do think it's a midterm challenge. We've seen Russia... I've noticed that, I'm back in here, I've muted the uh, committee hearing. They're still talking. But I've noticed that a lot of what, what we're talking about here is a few years away, right? So it's, it's the preparation of war. This is what this is. The first is economic moves, and then there's full out war. So what you are watching, in my opinion, my humble opinion, or conversations that happen before a war breaks out, right? So here's what we'll do. We will fast forward the committee hearing to live as it's happening right now, see where they are. Hopefully they're still in session. And we'll maybe do about five minutes of that. And then of course you can check it out on your own and listen to the full conversation. This is uh, happening today as we are recording. I just rewind it back to the beginning just to get a, a sense of what the conversation was. It's our job to document wealth. And one of the best ways to do it is through these hearings that are public domain forever. We should know what these policymakers are discussing, what agendas and ideas are pushing out there so you can be prepared. If we're, in, if we're about to go through an economic war and an all-out war, you as an investor, you as an entrepreneur should be able to know this information and not be blindsided by it. So anyway, let's move over to live as it's happening. This is live. Uh, this is not rewinded. This is live. And we are pulling it up right now. The U.S. dollar. Uh, and we should be concerned about China trying to put forward the RMB uh, as an alternative to that, including in the IMF. And so I, I would want to work with you on, on, on the specifics of the bill. I think the concept is correct. And we should do what we can to prevent them from increasing. I've, I've noticed that they've mentioned IMF a lot. We were actually preparing an episode on IMF. So be prepared uh, for a little bit more information on IMF. All these conversations that we're going to be studying on this season of Black Equity Podcast, 
they're all building on top of each other. We're listening to everything and figuring out how do we tell this story accurately and also teach as we're telling the story. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, embodies one of the most significant international threats the United States has faced in recent decades. Among other strategies, the authoritarian CCP hopes to dominate the global economy, as you know, through thefts of intellectual property, investments in foreign economies through the Belt and Roads Initiative, and through the promotion of alternative financial networks that undermine the U.S. dollar's role in the global economy. As a Congress, we wrote strong bipartisan legislation to take on China, and I'm confident that we can do it again here in the 118th Congress. Mr. Harrell and Mr. Lorber, I guess I'll start with Mr. Harrell. The Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill and the Chips and Science Act directly support our strategic competition with China by investing in our supply chains, our workforce, and emerging technologies. In your opinion, what should a CHIPS 2.0 bill look like? What are the best next steps for us to be working on now? Mr. Harrell. So thank you very much. And um, I 100% agree with you that the um, bills that Congress passed over the last several, of year, uh, several years to foster investments in chips, in scientific innovation, uh, in clean energy technology and in infrastructure generally, absolutely essential uh, to our um, uh, to our success. I would um, break future investments into two pieces. One is a technology piece, and one is a supply chain resilience piece. On the technology piece, and I think there really is a lot that is going on there, not just with chips, but with the in science part of that bill and the NSF. Uh, sort of reform agenda uh, there. I think there's a lot going on there, but I do think we need to be focused at a research perspective in um, quantum and in biotechnology. These, I think, are foundational that we need to do. On the supply chain resilience piece, we've done a lot on chips. Uh, we've actually been doing a fair amount on critical minerals. It's gonna take years for that to bear fruit, um, but there is a lot going on critical minerals, and we're doing a lot on clean technology. I think pharmaceuticals, uh, and pharmaceutical ingredients, not necessarily high-end things. We have supply chain vulnerabilities there. I also think there are a set of supply chain vulnerabilities that we don't know we have. And I think that the um, administration should undertake a kind of comprehensive review of what we're importing and supply chain vulnerabilities to get ahead of the things we don't know that we don't know. Very helpful, I appreciate that. I mean, the CCP has made it clear that it will leverage technology to breach U.S. institutions and steal our intellectual property, collect data on our citizens, and access the systems that control our critical infrastructure. I worked at a large technology company before I was in Congress, and it was no secret that China was stealing our work all the time. I guess, Mr. Lorber, if I can ask you, if this is appropriate, what can we do to better protect our intellectual property from cybercrime and the coercive tactics the CCP is using to steal from companies operating in China? Thanks. It, it's a great question. If the objective is, I think, rightly to protect... Uh, and don't, don't... I haven't heard it yet. But do not discount the fact that potentially, because of intellectual property, because of the spying, this all could be a way to get rid of TikTok. Uh, they are saying TikTok is owned by a, a Chinese uh, company, and they uh, could very well ban TikTok in the United States of America, one of the fastest growing apps out there. So keep that in mind. Uh, so this has been a really great dive in to a really important topic. I just wanted y'all to know that they're having these conversations. I have found, and I know I'll be uh, sitting down different interviews over the next uh, few months. And one of the things that you'll hear me say is that I have noticed one of the greatest uh, things that separates people with this wealth equity situation. The reason why I feel like I have a responsibility and others like me have a responsibility is because the greatest wealth inequity is about information. There's information that other platforms get that we don't get, that we don't pay attention to. And I know most people that are uh, that look like me, who may even talk like me, they may not even tell you about an economic hearing about China, right? Or if they do, they'll do it in passing for a 30-second clip. I think it's important to go over the hearing and talk about what we're seeing and spend quality time on it. We can't just play footsie 
with wealth information, right? And so this is such an important conversation. And so as we head out, uh, we'll, we'll hear what they have to say. And I thank you all for tuning in and being part of this conversation. And if you want to hear the full conversation, look it up online. But this is, there's a lot of moves happening economically that you should know about. And this is one of them. can have you back for that too. With that, gentleman from Tennessee is recognized for five minutes, Mr. Rose. Thank you, Chairman McHenry and Ranking Member Waters for holding this hearing, and I thank you to our witnesses uh, for taking time to be here with us today. I want to dive right in. About $1.7 trillion in securities of China-based issuers are listed on exchanges in the United States. Mr. Willems, um, as China continues to bolster its efforts to compete with the U.S. for capital, do you think U.S. investors have adequate information to understand their exposure so let me first say that I don't think inherently you don't want any Chinese companies listed on U.S. exchanges. As long as they play by the rules, um, it's good for us because it bolsters the, the importance of our markets. That said, I don't think uh, U.S. citizens generally understand uh, what they're getting into with some of those investments, and more transparency could be helpful. So some, some managers offer single country bonds that only invest in Chinese-related issuers among the risk listed in these funds or these types of funds are more frequent trading suspensions and government intervention, currency exchange rate fluctuations or blockages. 